Yes. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about the notorious B.I.G., if you don't know, Christopher George Latore Wallace, Biggie Smalls, Big Papa, was simply big. The mountain of a man with a slow, smooth flow who became one of the premier voices of 90s hip-hop. A gangster martyr cut down too young in a murder that still hasn't been solved and a beef that shouldn't have been. But this story isn't about Biggie. This is about Faith Evans, his ride-or-die wife, his bitter ex, the smoked voice singer, composer, and innovative music producer for whom Biggie was both muse and misery. This story is about a girl. Faith Evans put on her headphones, hit play, and waited for a ghost to speak. The album was finished, but she wanted to listen through one more time. Here it was, her whole history with Big in musical form. She mixed in so many voices. There was even a sample of her mother-in-law's Jamaican patois. Even Lil' Kim was on this joint. Who would have thought that was possible? But most of all, Piggy's voice, culled from old recordings and interviews and laced into the songs she'd written for him. People were going to say she was cashing in on his memory. Well, Biggie would have been the first to say there's nothing wrong with getting that paper. But the truth was that no matter how many times she spoke on Biggie, no matter how many times she told their story, there were still things she couldn't put into words. Maybe in music, people would be able to hear the things she couldn't say. With her eyes closed, his voice in her ears, she could almost feel him there. Like 20 years hadn't passed. Like she was still the kid she'd been when they met. It was the first photo shoot Faith had ever been to. She was nervous walking into the spot, 
a loft on the top floor of a Soho office building, but she thought she looked pretty fly. Or at least as fly as she could get shopping in New Jersey. She'd only been signed to Bad Boy Records for a few months. It was a hot new label started up by a guy known as Sean Puffy Combs. And it had a ton of buzz. But so far, they had her doing behind-the-scenes stuff, writing songs and singing backup for artists like Mary J. Blige, Color Me Bad, and Usher. Puff said her turn would come, and in the meantime, it was a living. The photo shoot was a swirl of activity. Makeup artists, recording artists, and Puffy in the middle, micromanaging the whole thing as loudly as possible. The camera flashed, and everyone mean mugged for the photographer. Even amid the chaos, it was hard to miss Biggie. She'd never met him before, but it was pretty easy to figure out who he was. That hulking figure in flannels and Tims, over six feet and at least 300 pounds, had to be the notorious B.I.G. During the break, Faith was going through some snapshots of her own from her 21st birthday party. That was when Biggie made his way over to her. He asked to see her birthday party pics, and she handed over the envelope. Later, when he called her, she would realize he'd gotten her number off the label on the outside. Biggie was slick like that. She liked it. He had game. After the shoot, he asked if he could get a lift to Brooklyn for him and his boys. He was impressed she had a car. He was a year older than her, but in a lot of ways, Faith had lived more in her 21 years than he had in his 22. She'd been to college, lived in California, and had her own apartment in Jersey. Biggie didn't know how to drive. He barely ever left Bed-Stuy, where he lived in the back bedroom of his mama's house. Jersey? Might as well be France. But he had a daughter, too, about the same age as Faith's. And he knew a thing or two about business. He'd been making pocket money selling drugs since he was in high school. He'd done a lot of grimy shit, he told her after she dropped off his boys and they sat together in the car. What kinds of shit? Anything you could think of. There was something about him. He was a mass of opposites. A soft, round face like a little boy's that could radiate street hardness and melt into a smile the next minute. He was smart and sophisticated, even though he'd never finished high school and hung with a wiseacre crew of teenagers. Faith ended up hanging with Big and his crew almost every day that week. She took him to her favorite Brooklyn Chinese spot, Kum Kao. They ate and smoked and talked shit with his friends, who were always around. When they wanted to be alone, they could choose between her car and his tiny bedroom. After five days, he kissed her. After two weeks, she heard him rap for the first time. It was at a party Puff was having in a club. Biggie walked up to the stage, holding a drink and a microphone. Then he opened his mouth, and the club went crazy. Faith watched in awe. As a performer, Big was absolutely at ease, smoothly throwing out rhyme on rhyme like it was effortless. His flow was never forced. He never had to catch a breath. It seemed easy, like there was no other way to rap even as he wove in and out of the beat like Michael Jordan heading for the basket. It was, in a word, mesmerizing. So that's who she'd been kicking it with these past two weeks. That night, she took him home to Jersey and climbed him like a tree. 
He proposed to her a few weeks after the performance at the club. She wasn't sure he was serious. She still hadn't met his baby mama. She still hadn't met his mama. But he was serious. And she was used to moving on impulse. They got married on August 4th in Rockland County, where they didn't have to wait for a license. Till death do us part, she said. They found a duplex in Fort Greene. She was able to pry him out of his mama's house, but not out of Brooklyn. They bought furniture, moved in, and lived there together with Faith's toddler, China, for about two weeks. Then, Biggie's album dropped. Ready to Die sold 500,000 copies that first week. His first single, Juicy, was suddenly in heavy rotation on MTV. Just like that, the notorious B.I.G.'s lyrics were on every kid's tongue in the nation. The broke up-and-comer Faith had married a month ago, the cat who thought Jersey was too far to travel, left on a European tour in October. That was the end of their cohabitation. Their marriage became a matter of visits and layovers. Faith would take quickie trips to spend a night with him at one hotel or another, flying back in the morning to work on her own album. Puff had her in the studio most days now. She was trying to concentrate on writing songs, but she was mostly worrying about Biggie. There was a game men and women played when they were married. The man tried to cheat. The woman tried to catch him. If she caught him, she won, even though she'd also lost. Faith knew this game. She participated when she was younger, in the minor role of the mistress. Now she and Big were taking up their positions, him on defense, her on offense. She was constantly suspicious. There was one woman on the tour with Big, Lil' Kim, a rapper with the Junior Mafia crew. She was a tiny bitty thing, and she hung around Big a lot. But Kim and Big had come up together, and Kim had assured Faith that Big was just like a brother to her. Faith was more worried about the random chicks he met after shows. She would look for clues while they smoked weed, ordered takeout, and had sex. Then she would fly back to New York, leaving him unsupervised. The day the tour pulled into Norfolk, Virginia, he sounded weird to her on the phone. He told her not to call his hotel room that night. He wouldn't be there because he was switching rooms with another guy on the tour. That sounded like bullshit to Faith. She paced around the apartment, simmering with anger and loneliness and injured pride. Then she booked a flight to Virginia. She went to the studio and spent the day working on a song called No Other Love, a song about a woman whose man is the only man for her. When she was done, she headed to the airport. In Virginia, she snuck into the hotel, making sure no one from Bad Boy saw her, and went to Biggie's room. When she knocked on the door, she called out, housekeeping, in a fake accent. A girl in a plaid skirt opened the door. Faith shoved past the girl, pushing her to the floor, and started hitting her in the face. She was screaming, not at the girl, but at Big, who was sitting on the bed, watching this all go down. This your little friend? You think you slick? Yo, chill, ma. I ain't fuck her. If you didn't fuck her, you should have, stupid, because she just got her ass beat. She screamed. It wouldn't be the last time Faith administered a beating on her man's behalf. Once she would even track a chick down to her home address, go there and jump her in her own front hall. Some might call it assault and battery. 
Faith thought of it more as relationship maintenance. This is what it meant to be ride or die. There were rules to this shit. You didn't just let someone sleep with your man without retaliating. Every action had to have a reaction. Retaliation was the law of the land. They made up, of course. But Biggie never really came back to live in the duplex in Fort Greene. He started staying in hotels in Manhattan when he was back in New York, telling her it was closer to the studio so he could maximize his recording time. Sometimes he'd come to chill with her in Brooklyn, and they'd order Chinese, pass a blunt back and forth and fuck, like old times. She knew he was still stepping out, maybe more than ever. If she asked him point blank, he wouldn't even deny it. She got his initials tattooed on her skin, and he liked that. They joked about marking his territory. But it was more about staking her claim to him than the other way around. There was other drama going on, but for Faith, it was in the background. Even though she'd been with the bad boy label for a minute now, Faith didn't pay much attention to industry politics. Who was cool and who had beef? It was a web of alliances and rivalries she couldn't fully track. But she noticed the fear in Biggie's voice when he called her one day in November. It wasn't something she heard in his voice a lot, and it unnerved her. It was one of the rare periods he was back in New York, and he'd been at a recording studio with his crew. Now he was telling her he wouldn't be home until late. They shot my boy, he said. It was Tupac Shakur, a rapper from Cali. Big had been tight with Pac ever since they met a year back. They dug each other's talent. Tupac had been in New York for a trial. He was facing rape charges. He'd been on his way to record at the same studio when he'd been mugged and shot. Faith didn't know Tupac, and she didn't know that he'd later publicly blamed Biggie and Puff for the shooting. She didn't know that a rivalry was springing up between Biggie's label and Tupac's, between East and West Coast, that would be laced through with misunderstandings, conspiracy theories, and violence. She was too busy working on her own album. In the studio, she wrote love songs that had a bite, melodies that twisted in uneasy ways before temporarily resolving. She wrote lyrics that she wanted to say aloud to Big, but couldn't. She wrote lyrics that she wanted to hear from him, but wouldn't. She wrote songs about their rare nights of synchronicity and about their growing distance. Later, she'd say that first album was the soundtrack of their marriage. It dropped in August of 1995. Titled simply, Faith, it would end up going almost platinum. Faith would never forget hearing her own voice on the radio for the first time, hearing her songs pouring through the doors of nightclubs and bodegas, losing the ability to run to the corner for a blunt without being recognized. Even if she wore a hat pulled down low in shades, fans would recognize her by the mole on her lip. The songs she'd written about Biggie belonged to everyone now. If he was the brilliant center of the hip-hop solar system, she was becoming a star in her own right. That month, she and Biggie were featured on the cover of Vibe magazine together, the royal couple of hip-hop. In the cover image, they're sitting in the back of a convertible, Big in a satin-lapeled black suit and hat, Faith in black leather. Big's arm is wrapped around Faith. She cuddles up close to him, her hand protectively on his chest. They look sophisticated, which is what Puffy wanted for her image. They look in love. They arrived at the shoot separately, and they left that way too. 
She was slowly getting used to the idea of her and Biggie living separate lives. Hell, at this point, they'd been living apart longer than they'd ever lived together. In fact, she'd moved out of the Fort Greene duplex and was starting to look for her own place in the city. She still cared about Big, but it was time to concentrate on herself, not her on-again, off-again marriage. She was so over it that when she finally found out he'd been fucking Lil' Kim this whole time, she felt resignation more than rage. That didn't mean Kim would get to skip out on a beating, though. But it could wait. By November 1995, Faith was feeling restless. The album had been huge, but Puffy still asked her to tour with other bad boy acts for free. Free? After selling how many records? She told him thanks, but no thanks. Instead, she flew out to California to do some songwriting work for a girl group. She had bills to pay and royalties from the album wouldn't be coming in right away. By this time, the convoluted beef between the East Coast and the West Coast was fully underway. Any hip-hop fan could have told you the tale of mounting tensions and back-and-forth insults between MCs and CEOs. It was getting almost to the point where a New York rapper just being in L.A. was seen as an act of aggression. But, as she'd tell everyone again and again afterwards, it wasn't something Faith was paying attention to. She knew Death Row Records was beefing with Bad Boy, that Death Row's CEO Suge Knight had talked some shit about Puffy, but she didn't sweat all the greasy details. As far as she knew, from Biggie, the whole thing with Tupac was all hype. He and Tupac had been cool before, and if they weren't anymore, he'd never mentioned it to her. So she didn't think anything of it when she was out at a Cali club and a friend introduced her to Tupac. They took a picture together. Pac said he liked her music. He wanted to record with her. He had a song in mind that would be perfect for her voice. She was flattered and told him she'd do it if he got it cleared with her label. And if he paid her. 25 grand. No problem, Pac told her. They talked on the phone a few days later. Everything seemed cool. They were both going to the premiere party for Whitney Houston's Waiting to Exhale later that week. Faith had done a song on the soundtrack, so they made plans to meet up. But at the party, Faith started feeling weird. Pac was acting like they were there on a date. She saw Whitney looking at her like, oh word, you with him now? She didn't like it. But neither Big nor anyone at Bad Boy had told her it was a bad idea to record with Pac and she'd already agreed. A few days later, he sent a car to bring her to the studio so she could lay down some rough vocals. It wasn't until they pulled up at the studio that Faith realized she was at Death Row Records headquarters. Shit. She would insist later that she hadn't even known that Death Row's Suge Knight had bailed Tupac out of jail in return for a two-album deal. She just knew that Knight wasn't anyone she wanted to work with and that his studio wasn't somewhere she wanted to be. It was too late now. She hadn't even come in her own car. She was stuck. She recorded some vocals, uncomfortable the whole time, feeling set up. At one point, Suge made an appearance and came over to greet her. She tried to stay cool and polite. Inside, she was panicking. At the end of the session, she asked Pac for her fee. 25 grand. He said he'd give it to her at his hotel. That's how she wound up in his hotel room. His entourage vanished as soon as they got there. They were alone. 
his demeanor changed. She was from New York, he said. Well, he didn't fuck with New York. New York had set him up to get shot. He meant puffy and big. Her heart was pounding. You don't really believe that, she said. Look, I'm not about that. I'm just here for my check. Okay, Pac said. If I give you this check, you're my bitch. You're what? I'm not anybody's bitch. You're Biggie's bitch. I'm Biggie's wife. So you're just trying to suck my dick? She barely remembered the rest of what was said. Pac was swearing and yelling. She was crying and yelling back. She got out of there, but without the money. She knew she'd never see that 25 grand. And she knew something else. It was time to get the hell out of California. But trouble had a way of following her home. Back in New York, it only took a few months before rumors started circulating that she and Tupac had hooked up in L.A. They'd been seen at Whitney's party, arriving and leaving together. Faith knew what it looked like. Biggie was apoplectic. He busted into Faith's Manhattan hotel room, shaking her and screaming. She'd never seen him so angry. You fucked Tupac? She hadn't, of course. She fucked a basketball player named Roger. She wasn't about to tell him that, though. Nothing happened, she said. We recorded a song together. You did what? Nothing she could say could change the fact that Suge and Tupac were featured on the cover of that week's New York Times magazine. And in the article, they were quoted saying that Faith had been with Tupac, buying him gifts of expensive clothes. How did you thank her? I did enough. Now the rumor was tantamount to fact. And they kept feeding it. In another interview, a reporter asked Tupac if it was true he'd been with Biggie's wife, Faith. I don't kiss and tell. Big was getting anonymous callers asking about his wife cheating on him with Tupac. Radio DJs were discussing it. It was becoming a permanent part of the lore of the East Coast-West Coast beef. The ultimate way to get back at a rival. Fucking his woman. She'd been set up. Things were strange between her and Big. He calmed down and listened to her explanation. He was still hurt, and he didn't necessarily believe her that nothing had gone on. But he still took her side either way. If the motherfucker really did fuck Faye, that's foul how he just blowing her like that. He told a Vibe reporter. If honey was to give you the pussy, why would you disrespect her like that? If you had beef with me and you like, boom, I'ma fuck his wife, would you be so harsh on her? That shit don't make sense. In February, around Valentine's Day, he called her to come meet him at a gig in New Orleans. That night, they had one of their rare evenings when they chilled together, had sex together, got right with each other. It was all but over between them. He was with someone else now, a woman from Philly called Tiffany. She was seeing the basketball player. But after all, they were still husband and wife, and on occasion, they could be lovers. Soon, she found out they would be something more. Parents. She was pregnant. By now, East and West Coast rappers were releasing dueling diss tracks about each other's crews. Big didn't participate. Instead, in his lyrics, he laughed off the idea that Pac had slept with Faith, playing up on her pregnancy. If Faye have twins, she'll probably have two Pox. Get it? Two Pox. Faith was pissed. Big's attempt to deflate tension was also an insult to her and his future child. 
he knew full well that baby was his. But it was nothing compared to how she felt when Pac released a diss track of his own, rapping about how he'd fucked her. The singles from her own album were still climbing the charts. She should have been treated like a star. Instead, she was being treated like a punchline. Strangers on the street would ask her whose baby she was carrying. It was a tense time. Luckily, there was a bright spot. She finally got to beat up Lil' Kim. Faith was eight months pregnant when she got a call from a friend, Missy Elliott, in fact, who was just coming up as an MC then, that Kim was in the recording studio that day. Missy knew they had unfinished business. Faith decided it was time to let out some aggression. At the studio, she found Kim, who was sitting at a table writing lyrics. Faith snuck up from behind and started wailing on her without warning. I told you I was going to fuck you up, bitch. Next thing, Puffy and another producer, Stevie J, were hauling her away from Kim. Kim had picked up a folding chair and looked like she was ready to swing it. Puffy hustled Faith out of the studio. I told that bitch I was going to beat her ass, Faith explained to him. There was nothing he could say. Retaliation was the law of the land. Tupac was killed in September. Faith and Biggie's son, CJ, was born in October. For Biggie, it seemed like those two events, plus a car crash he survived that left him with a messed up leg and a pimp cane, changed his outlook on things. His first album had been called Ready to Die because that's how every young black man felt coming up, like they'd never see their 25th birthday. But Big was closing in on that birthday now. He'd seen his friend-slash-rival shot to death. He'd call Faith that night crying and witness his wife give birth to their son while he held her hand. His next album, he told Faith, would be called Life After Death because he was ready for the rest. Rumors buzzed like flies around Tupac's death. Some people said Big had him killed for sleeping with Faith. Others pointed the finger at Puffy or a gang or even Suge himself. The feds were involved, hoping to prove the record labels were just gang-affiliated criminal fronts. But Big was in the studio working on that second album, a double disc with 25 songs, one for every year he'd lived. Faith was in the process of moving to a house in Jersey. She wanted more space for her growing family. She was seeing a producer named Doug. She made it clear to Biggie they were done messing around together. But she still spent time with Big and their combined three kids. And she still corrected Lil' Kim a second time for continuing to mess with him. Big was still hers in a way she couldn't explain, least of all to herself. In January, Big finished life after death. The next month, he flew out to L.A. He was doing promo for the album, but it was also Puff's way of signaling that the beef between coasts was over. After Pac's death, Death Row Records had imploded Shug was under arrest for parole violation, and some of their frontliners, like Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, were departing for greener pastures. It seemed like a good time to reclaim L.A. Faith didn't like it, but no one asked her. Whenever Big called to check on her and the kids, she asked him to come home to New York. Why you staying out there so long? It's been over a month. He'd just sigh. There was still work to do. He'd see her when she flew out to L.A. for the Soul Train Awards. 
Will your little girlfriend be there? She asked him. He was still with Tiffany. She didn't have any claim to him, but it still made her mad. Come on, don't be like that, he said. The conversation turned into a fight and they hung up on each other. She still wasn't talking to him when she landed in LA, CJ in her arms. At the airport, by chance, she saw Biggie. He had come out with a friend to pick up someone else. He asked to see the baby. She handed CJ over, watched Big play with him for a minute or two, but they didn't speak. Her second night in town, she ran into him again. She was in a car with some friends when Big's ride pulled up beside them. Faith wasn't ready to make up with him yet, so she dug down in the back seat out of sight while the guys in the front talked. Y'all seen my wife, Biggie asked. Nah, they hadn't. Biggie pulled away. Later, after the award show at the Vibe After Party, she knew he was there along with the whole bad boy crew. She'd seen him walking in, leaning on that cane. He saw her too, but they still avoided each other. As the party emptied out, she heard the pop, pop, pop of gunfire. The hell? But it was too far away for her to see what was happening. And she was on her way out. There was another party to attend that night. Later, she'd wonder where she was at the precise moment Biggie died. Was she in an SUV heading up to Hollywood Hills? Was she at the after-after party? How could she have not sensed this somehow? How could she not have realized that the gunshots she'd heard had made her a widow? Retaliation was the law of the land. With each of the 20 years gone by, it all seemed more and more foolish. Such a waste. So much water under that bridge now, enough to drown in. So many tributes to Biggie. Faith had contributed to most of them. Raising his son, she missed him terribly. For her, there had been six more albums after Biggie died, including The First Lady which went to number one on the Billboard 200. She wrote a memoir in 2008 that was a New York Times bestseller and won the African American Literary Award for Best Biography or Memoir. There were two more marriages, two more pregnancies, two more births. Now, in the studio, a shiver passed through her. She kept it together all through making this album. Every track a song about Biggie, featuring his voice and his words. She called it The King and I, and it was a kind of autobiography. She hadn't cried when she wrote the songs. Reviewers would call them uncomfortably raw. Or when she recorded them. Not even when she reached out to Lil' Kim to guest star on a song about how much they both had loved Big. But as the last track settled into silence, she felt tears well up and she felt something like a tap on her shoulder, something like a voice in her ear. Christopher Wallace went from a small-time hustler to Notorious Big in his brief time in this world. He's one of a handful of rap artists who truly changed the game, and his still unsolved murder robbed the world of a monumental voice. This isn't about him. This is about Faith Evans, a misunderstood pawn in a senseless game whose own expressive voice struggled to emerge from her husband's larger-than-life shadow 
but still helped to define modern R&B. Now you know, this is about a girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created by Eleanor Wells. This episode was written by S.I. Rosenbaum. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer and composer. Matt Bowden provides logistical support. I'm Nikki Lynette. Thanks for listening. You can follow me at at Nikki Lynette on Twitter and Instagram, at Double Elvis on Instagram, and at Double Elvis FM on Twitter. If you like the show, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more great podcasts from Double Elvis, visit doubleelvis.com.